invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13.5 again. We were there last Sunday talking about one of my favorite subjects, the presence of the indwelling Christ. I don't think in life it'll get better than that. You may not realize what that means, and you may not benefit from what that means. But what that means is that there's somebody is inside of you to do a work in you that could not be done any other way or by anybody else, a work which makes life what it should be and brings you to a place in eternity where God wants you to be. The indwelling Christ, His presence. In 2 Corinthians thirteen five, it says, Examine yourself to make sure that He is in there. Let me say this in prefacing what I'm about to say again, a little bit of what I said. It is so easy to attend a religious service. It is so easy to fit in, to learn the way we do things, to learn the routine. It is so easy to be nice when you should be nice and listen to sermons and assume that because you're there listening to sermons... And you don't cuss, drink, smoke, run around, and watch porn. You must, therefore, be okay, which means born again, belonging to God, having His life in you. And it's easy to assume that. It's just easy to think yourself like that without ever having had some definite experience that brought this to pass. It is easy to go to church, learn church, and assume that you're everything that you should be because you go to church or you were born into a church and you've always been here and your parents have been here. Now you're married and you're bringing your kids here. It's easy to assume. But we're challenged here. Christians are challenged in 2 Corinthians thirteen five. He said to examine yourself. Prove your own selves. Know ye not? He says that Christ is in you unless or except you be reprobates. That's a strong word, isn't it? He begins, as we said last week, with two words that require an action from you. You you must examine yourself and prove yourself. Now, everybody else has, but you need to do it to yourself also. The two words had to do with testing yourself, putting yourself to the test asking questions to yourself, and then see what your answer is. Are you fully committed to the Lord? Do you love Jesus Christ? Has it been evident in your life this week, in last week, in your speech, in your actions, your choices, your relationship with other people, what comes out of your mouth? Is there evidence here that Christ is in you? Examine yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not an insult to any of us. The Apostle Paul wrote it to Christians. A sinner couldn't answer this. We have to answer this. Is Christ in you? Because he said, if you don't pass the test, if you fail the test, he said, then you would be reprobate. Now, reprobate is our word which means disapproved or rejected. Y'all remember the verse in 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul was talking about runners running the race and having a discipline in their life that allows their body to perform best and you eat foods and you train and you rest and all of that? He said at the end of that chapter concerning him and his ministry and what he was doing, the great apostle Paul, he said, and I'll put it in, in my own words, he said, it is possible for me to preach to you and yet come to the end of my life and be a castaway if I don't keep my body under. If I let my body rule me, my senses rule me, my feelings, pleasures, passions, if I let my eyes flood my brain with, boy, i got to have that. If my body runs my life, though I'm preaching the right words, because this happens. You're preaching the right thing. People are getting saved because you said it. But you... The real you is not like that. You're not exactly what you said you were. You're not what you're saying. He said, if you don't, then you'd be a reprobate. 
you'd be disapproved. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said there will be those in that day who said, but Lord, we've done this. Remember that? Lord, we've cast out devils. We've worked miracles. We've prophesied to people. And Jesus said, I never knew you. And the church, the nominal shallow church has a huge struggle with those words. How can it be that somebody endowed with such a gift or such an anointing do such marvelous things could wind up having the one they face say, I never knew you. How could this be? Well, it's easy to see. He said, you examine yourself because you know what? If you're allowing yourself freedoms that the Bible says you shouldn't, but you're assuming that because you go to church or you preach, you're all right then you could wind up being a castaway. How many of you believe that preachers, apostles, prophets, any ministry is held to the same standard that everybody else is? Nobody is above that. And preaching doesn't make you saved. Missionary trips don't mean you're saved. That's a whole different story. But he said, if you're reprobate, it means you're rejected. And I'll say this, then we'll move on. One of the things that Paul said last week in the book of Romans, chapter 1, was he said that a reason for rejection of anybody, church members or not, he said that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Remember that, Romans one twenty-eight. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It just didn't fit with the lifestyle they really wanted to live and said, so God gave them up to do those things which are not convenient, not right, not fitting, not proper. God didn't stop them from doing it. He did allow them to do what preaching whatever they were doing. And he did not prevent them from doing stuff that will judge them. Now, he could, but he didn't. You know, the fear and trembling is getting to be a bigger word. That we can be so close and yet be so far. We can talk ourselves into the fact that we're all right and then allow ourselves liberties that God has to judge. And we should know better. And we will know better if we give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard and not let them slip or pass us by. Now, I asked you a question last week. Is Christ in you? Is there evidence of Christ being in you. And if you say he is, then I ask you the question, how did he come in? When did he come in? How did Jesus come into your life? Now, did he come in one day that he just grabbed Thomas here and said, I'm coming in, get out of the way. <laughs> Holy, ho no, he didn't do that. You know the story. He brings conviction. Then he brings repentance then he brings godly sorrow, and then he brings a response from you. Now, the response is repentance and sorrow and turning away from your sins unto God. Now, we call this the new birth. The new birth essentially means that something that was not in you before, in a dead you, has come into you, which is life. And this new life that's come into you comes in the form of a person. It's Christ. And he makes his presence, he takes up his presence in you, a tabernacle, he calls you, not made with hands, made in the image of God. And he comes in you who were doomed to give you life. And the life that he brings you is designed to glorify him. Now, would you turn to Ezekiel 36 again for just a moment because this is the new birth. This is what the new birth is about. Ezekiel chapter 36. We looked at 11 last week. While you're finding that, let me read what I read to you last week in Ezekiel 11. He said, And I will put a new spirit within you, which means... The old one was unacceptable. The spirit that animates you, that runs a show here, is dead in the eyes of God because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. 
So God said, in order for you to live, it'll take an act of God. Something from above must approach and come into something beneath the new birth. So he said, I will put my spirit in you. And he said, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Now, let me ask you a question because I like to make sure you understand this. If God said, I will put my spirit within you so that you may be able to walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, is there any other way then for us to qualify as faithful? So if I'm going to be faithful to God, this is the way it has to be. I can't learn how to do it and act like you act and satisfy myself that if you're going to heaven, I'm going to heaven because you're no better than I am. There has to be something from heaven take its residence in my heart in such a way that my life changes. Are we together? That my life is changed. What I used to be, I am not any longer. Now, I'm going to work my way out of it because it'll take a while to grow. Growth is a process. A new baby doesn't just suddenly emerge as some holy giant in the faith, but he's new. She's new. And you begin to, as newborn babes, you begin to desire the milk and so forth, that you may grow thereby into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. But you cannot do it unless something from heaven comes in first. And that something is the Spirit of God. It's a life-giving Spirit. And he went on to say, and when this happens, and they shall be my children, and so on. And so forth. Now, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, he said, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Remember, the Bible said, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, Now you are clean through what? Through the word that I have spoken to you. What cleansed them? What do you say in Ephesians 5 about the church? He will sanctify and cleanse his church with the washing of of water by the word. We were told about this in the Old Testament here, that this is what this means. He said, and I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's what the word will do to you. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit that I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'm going to change your being. You'll have the same brain because you still have to make decisions. You still have to yield to God. You still have to desire His way. But God says, I'm going to make it possible for you to do this. Not because other people do it, but because you desire to do it. This is the work of God. And the next verse says, and I'm glad he said this. And I will put my spirit within you and, what did he say? And cause you to walk in my statutes. What if I told you this morning, not all church members walk in his statutes. What if I told you that not all people that join church have been members in churches and sing in the choir, maybe preach gospel, that not all of them do this? Why? Why don't they? They're in a religious atmosphere. Why don't they? Why not? Is there a lack of something in their life? Is something missing? Are you afraid to answer that? Didn't God say, I will do this, this, and this, and then I will cause you to walk in my statutes? Well, if a man has said he has this, this, and this, but he is not walking in his statutes... Now, he may be growing and having his back against God for a couple things he doesn't want to yield to. That could be. It takes a while. Or he could have made up his mind that, no, I don't believe you have to do that. I don't think all that's necessary. I think that's too legalistic anyway. What's wrong here? Something's wrong. Because God said, I'll cause you to walk in my statute. I'll cause it. God Almighty said, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. 
and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Look at verse 28. You got to look at it so we can move on. And he said, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, if I gave you a verbal test this morning, you're going to quietly answer in your mind. And if I said to you, if God makes his claim on a person's life, you didn't choose me. So if God chose you, can there be evidence of his choosing you? What's the evidence? The life you live. It's God dedicated. It's God committed. It's a life that is sincerely motivated by something new inside of you that wasn't there before, which wants to do right. And if you do wrong, because we are human and we are babes and we are growing and we sometimes get it crossed up and we, and we have to deal with feelings and thoughts, our mind has to be transformed. Our brain does. But he said, if we do mess up along the way, we have an advocate with the Father Christ Jesus the faithful who, if you will confess your sin, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you because only he can and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is constantly there to keep you and I on track. And it bothers me more and more for the people who profess they're Christian, but they just really don't want to live this life. They want to be foolish and so forth. Now, I ended here last week. If you belong to Jesus and he has chosen you, if Christ is in you and you're his tabernacle and God really is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, number one, you're special. You are special. He didn't make this choice with everybody. The choice of God making you his disciple is not because you attend church. It's not because you are a nice person and you're kind or that you're a big giver. God brings you to himself and personally assigns himself to do a work inside of you that when he's done with you, he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, as though you did it. Now, you have to make choices. You have a will. We live by our wills. We live by choices. And God is able to exercise his divine grace upon you so that you are willing to make the right choices that he will show you. And when you do, he says, well done. But think of this. You're special. One of the words in the Bible that describes specialness is the word beloved. Jesus is called the beloved of God, beloved, greatly loved, loved especially by God. God's special love is assigned to Jesus Christ, and his love on Jesus was a great enablement in his life. And yet, more than he did with Jesus, he calls you his beloved. Remember a song we used to sing? Maybe you don't remember this. We have so many of them. I am my beloved's and he is mine. His, you've heard it. His banner over me is love. That's Solomon, what, two, four. I am my beloved's and he is mine and his banner over me is love. Well, if you are his, it is because he made you his. Isn't that right? Think of it. God made a selection out of the sea of humanity out of the multitudes that, like sand in the sea, and he could scoop up a whole sand full of little tiny, tiny, tiny rocks we call sand, and their people, and he could shake them and reach down and his ability and grab one little grain of sand and put that in his presence, and you're his. He said, I picked you personally. You're his. If you've been born again this morning, if you can honestly say, examining yourself, I am convinced, persuaded, assured, and certain that I have been born again. My life is a testimony to His presence. 
that he has made you special. You know what? You're going to make it. You're going to triumph in this life. You're going to make it all the way through because of one thing, of the power that is in you. You will. I don't care what is forecast, what prognosticator comes along and says, tomorrow is the day of doom. I am going to heaven, whether today, tomorrow, or whenever. I have been secured by the Lord. He has brought me to his banqueting table. And his banner over me is love. He has seated me next to Jesus in heavenly places. And as he called Jesus his beloved, he calls me his too. He wants me to have joy. He wants me to have peace. He has made provisions for all of my needs. All of my needs are are outlined in this book. These are things that belong to me, things he's going to give to me. He's mine. I'm his. He singles me out for blessing. In fact, Ephesians 1 says that he has already blessed me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I am my beloved's and he is mine. His banner over me is love plus all the blessings that come. And as God blessed him, he's willing to bless me. As God loved him, he's willing to love me. As God guided him, he's willing to guide me. As God led him, he's willing to lead me. His banner over me is love. What if I told you that you're so special to God that he is willing to treat you as well as he would treat his son? The fact that God loves you sorted through all the people, all the grains of sand. Who's that? Well, you all can't see it, but I can see him. That's Tom Hamilton. You save him? (laughs) Yeah. Why would you want to save him? You haven't seen the end of him, have you? No. I'm going to plant him in my courts. And as the Song of Solomon says, I'm going to breathe upon him, and he's going to grow. And I'm going to use him, and I'm going to put little microphones in his mouth, and I'm going to push this word out everywhere I go, and I'm going to use him to do that. Now, he better live right, but I'm going to use him. You know what? I'm going to use you too. Your neighbor across the street, that little girl, that little boy born in your family, child special. Mama, Daddy, treat this child as special. This is a gift from God. A little olive plant. He's going to be mashed and turned into oil. And God's going to use him to heal wounds and make things taste better. and Fellowship, oil of joy and gladness. Special. It's a great word to be special. God makes you special because Christ in you is the reason that this happens. Let me tell you something else about this. The presence of Christ in you makes you strong. Strong. Not physically strong. You don't have to be physically strong. Is anybody in here a weakling? A kid. A little somebody weighs 50 pounds. They make it 80 pounds because they're a little older. 80-pound kid. How many of you weigh 80 pounds? Put that hand down. All right. 80-pound kid faces a 350-pound ball of muscle, one of those Ramuses that fights in a cage. You know, they get in a cage and try to kill each other. And this bruiser-trained Ramus is going to Attack your little 60-pound so-and-so. Now, who would win in a, just a fight? It wouldn't last but, what, five seconds? And then he would be like bricks, you know, he's stomping bricks. But what if you put in your little 60-pound boy's head a 40-millimeter handgun with a clip that would hold, say, 19 rounds? Now, just how bad is Ramus now? <laughs> Ignoramus. How bad is he now? He doesn't have a chance, does he? He doesn't have a chance because this boy's tough. Tough ain't got nothing to do with it. That little boy's got a bark here, bite yonder. 
And he's got this loaded weapon in his hand that he didn't make it. He didn't manufacture it. He probably doesn't know how to load it. And if he did, his thumb would get sore by third round. He tried to get in there. But it's loaded when he gives it to him. And this gun enables him to be strong, that is, with his enemy who wants to destroy his life. Because the weapons of his warfare are mighty through God. God equips this 60-pounder with something. You know, Big Rame here gets really scared when he faces that boy. Because that boy's got something in his hand that no mortal can stop. That gun's designed to do that. What did the ten spies say when they went into Egypt and God said, I'm giving you all that land? All right, pick ten, get one out of each tribe. Get one of you out of each of your tribes. Sit them up here, all right? You fellas go in there and, and check it out. We'll be waiting for you. Go in and look at the land. I'm giving it to you. And the ten spies came out and said, here's the pomegranates and here's the grapes. Here's evidence of the fruit and the land truly is green and lush. All the valleys are. This place is loaded with whoo, everything. We've never seen the goodness like we see here. However, Big Ramus lives down in those valleys. And he lives on these hilltops. They have iron chariots. What's an arrow going to do with an iron chariot? Down in one place, we saw giants that were bigger than Ramus. These, these were giants. I mean, these were, these were big boys. And they were so mean and vicious looking. And we look at ourselves. I'm a 60-pound, maybe 160-pound. I just came out of Egypt with my parents 40 years ago. We would have been here earlier if they hadn't messed up. But here we are. I'm now an adult. I'm 40 at least years old. I've never seen anything like this. You know, in Egypt, all we did was obey rules and we couldn't stop anybody, defeat anybody. We had no rights. We couldn't do anything that they didn't want us to do. We were just slaves. And now we come out here in this land and God said he's given it to us. And yet when we go in and look at it, it is like he said as far as the growth. But we can't beat these people. Listen, I can hold my fist up and it's that wide. And the giant fist must be at least three of these. He wouldn't even have to swing, just raise his hand and drop it, and that's it. <laughs> I can't handle that. I can't fight this guy. I could get back and try all my moves. I can't fight him. He wouldn't have any problem with me. My spear would bounce off of him. What's the problem here? When God sent us in this world, when he called us to go and do the things that we say we can't do and we're not able to do, could we? Instead of seeing grasshoppers, we're looking at giants. Oh, my goodness. Woo, I better run and hide. But two of those guys, Caleb and Joshua, came out of there, and giants looked like grasshoppers to them. They said, they're meat for us. And all the educated folks said, oh, you're nuts. He said, they are meat for us. They're just part of what we go through to get there. God cannot lie. He said, go in and take the land. I'll give it every place the sole of your foot spreads. Joshua just told us if we would just honor God and do what he said, he would give it to us. We'd have good success. Now we go in and look at the land, and then we're now saying that God lied to us. He said we could. We're saying, I cannot. I can't do that. You want people in the church to do things or... Or volunteer. I can't do that. Oh, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. Who told you you can't? Yes, there's things you can't do. Of course there is. But who told you that you that all the things that we say we can't do, the things that drive us to complacency, who told us we couldn't do it? Who tells us that? Who told you you were just a little old weakling that when God saves you, you'd never rise above the level of grasshoppers? Didn't he seat you in heavenly places? 
Didn't he say that he will stay himself in those heavenly places until you put all things under your feet? Did he not say he gave power to the church to do that? Then why do we act like we can't do anything? The mention of the flu, disease, or sickness. The mention of a problem or trouble. And fear comes running into people's lives like it lived there forever. And we just begin to melt, as they did. We just begin to melt in fear because I see the whole world with my strength. I can't do that. That's too. I couldn't. Oh, I couldn't handle that. Oh no, I can't. Whew. Oh, I couldn't climb that hill because not even God could give me the strength to climb that hill. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you that you could not? Love your husband or your wife. Or be united with your husband or your Who told you you couldn't? Who told you that God's not big enough to solve every problem we have? Who told you? Who has convinced you that in light of the world situation, you're nothing more than a measly little grasshopper and you're going to die and get stomped in the middle of it because I don't care what church you go to, it ain't going to work for you. Who's it ever worked for? Who did you ever see get healed or get this or a miracle? When did you ever see one? You've never seen one. What? You're a grasshopper. And Christians sit down and think, you know, I read about giants, but I'm a grasshopper. And yet there were two guys in the Bible that found favor in the sight of God. They were both in their 80s. I'm not there. By long shot. What are you laughing at? You know what I just thought the other day? In eight years, in eight years, you'll be 80. Y'all need to be thinking about who's next. I'm not yet, but anyway... Because 80 was just a number to two men in the Bible. Why were they fearless? Why were they able to go out there and look at giants like young David? Why were they not afraid of what was before them? They couldn't even go to the next phase of their life until they faced this first. Why were they not afraid? Why did these old boys draw their swords? Why did Caleb say, give me the mountain? That's where the giants were. Give me the mountain when you start passing out the land for our inheritance. Give me the mountain. I'm as good as I ever was. He's 80. There's hope. There's hope. Though you cane away, there's hope. There is hope. What makes you think? Because I think. On what God said, and thus I believe what God said, that I can do all things through Christ who uh, strengtheneth me. Then if he does strengthen me, what is it that I cannot do that he wants me to do? Now, if I'm trying to do what somebody else did, it might not work. But when I'm doing what he gives me to do, why should I be afraid? Whom should I fear? Of what should I be afraid? If God be for me, church, out there in the world, Sarah, who can be against me? Then would to God I would get my thinking in harmony with the greater one who lives inside of me. The one on the inside of me who inspires me, if I will listen to him, he tells me that I can do whatever he said I can do. That he said I can do all things through Christ, then I can. I'm not a grasshopper. I'm not a giant. I'm a Christian. But it doesn't matter if it's grasshoppers or giants that you have to face. That dark hour you've heard somebody testify that, oh, God, don't ever let that happen to me. Well, it probably won't, but what if it did? Will you run? Will you give up? Will you quit? Will you esteem God as telling you less than the truth? 
that he said you could, and now you're saying, no, he won't either, and I'm going to act like he won't. Are you going to call him a liar? Or are you going to admit that, you know, I'm not where I should be in all of this? God, give me wisdom and understanding in your word so that I can be strong through your word. I don't want to cave into pressure. I don't want to be scared of people. I don't want to fall apart when the heat comes. I want to be strong in the Lord. I want to be like little David. Who does this Philistine think he is? His brother said, oh, shut up. Go home and get the goats. He said, who does he think he is talking to us like that? Everybody was coward. He'd open that big nasty mouth of his and everybody would go, oh, ho, 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 ho. And David said, he ain't no different than the bear and the lion that I killed. Down he went. Were we on the hillside or were we there? Amen, David. Or were we saying, somebody get him out of here. They're going to make a giant man. Then we're all going to suffer for it. <laughs> Who are we afraid of? Who are we afraid of? Are we afraid of the looks of other people? What can people do? It's like a man one time was going to be killed by another man. hid in the bushes to do it. I heard the story. I don't know this. And the man that was going to do the killing, when that man came out of his office, took off running. And later, after being saved, he came to the man, confessed his sin to the man, but said, who were those two guys with you? I don't know anybody. He said, oh, these were Ramus and his brother. He said, I don't know. I know this, that concerning you, in the 91st Psalm, that concerning you, he gives his angels charge. He gives his angels charge. He says to his angels, whatever their names are, whatever they are, he says, I want you and you to follow Hamilton around. Never leave his side, not even for a moment. When he's driving, when he's walking, when he's sitting, sleeping, thinking, whatever he's doing, I want you there all the time. I want you to watch over him, take care of him. Hebrews chapter 1, there are ministering spirits sent to minister to us. And God gives him charge concerning you. Then what in the world are we afraid of? What is it that we cannot do that God wants us to do? What is it? There's some fellows going on a mission field here Tuesday. And I'm sure there's thoughts, the devil throws thoughts, well, what if a gang of hoodlums decides they're going to silence this anti-Catholic or Christian message, whatever they're going to say, they're going to stop this. And yet, these guys will go anyway. And you see them coming and you stand your ground, trusting that God is bigger than they are and that no evil shall befall me. Because concerning me, God has given his angels charge to keep me in all of my ways. Isn't that possible? Folks, Christ in us is a big deal. It is a really big deal. Notice thirdly, the Christ in you is what makes you an overcomer. Turn to Romans 8 for just a moment. Romans Chapter 8 and verse 33. I think we're all familiar with that more popular verse about overcomers in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 concerning the indwelling Christ. He said, for greater is he that is in you. You remember that? He said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And it's because of him that is in you that we overcome. Now, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Is this why we will quit? 
Is this why we will give up? We've got so comfortable in America with all the luxuries and the refineries of life, and now we're coming to a time, an uncertain, trust me with this, we are coming into the most uncertain time in history. The most wicked hour this earth has probably ever known more than Sodom and Gomorrah. The most evil forces are at work throughout the whole world to bring the world into darkness. And as the Bible said, the devil goes about to deceive the whole world. The whole world. What a statement. The whole world. Will you quit over this? He said, who's going to separate you? Verse 37. Nay, in all these things, folks, Christians, saints, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. More than conquerors. The word conquer or overcome is the Greek word Nike. We call it Nike. But there's a family, Nike, Nikeo, Nico, and these words simply mean to prevail or to overcome. In this case, to conquer. But now when you put more than, the Greek prefix more than on Nike, you get the word, I'd call it Hooper, but it's probably pronounced Uper, Nikeo, or Nikao. That is, you're more than a conqueror. You win before the battle begins. <laughs> Can you imagine when I get up in the morning, the battle's won? But the battle is not mine, but the Lord's. I have to engage the enemy. I have to do my part. But the promise that abides upon me is that the greater one on the inside, the indwelling Christ in me, will put me over this day. And if I encounter the enemy, if I encounter darkness, whatever I encounter, I have somebody in me who has already... Defeated the devil. Didn't he tell us that in John 16 verse 33? He said, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Why would I be? Because he's already done it. Everything I have to do in putting down the same foe that he did, everything I have to do, he's already done it. The Bible said, Peter wrote, for this cause Christ came into the world that he might destroy the works of the enemy. Guess who he's going to finish it through? Us. Little soldiers of the cross. Warriors of the kingdom. True warriors. Equipped with swords, shields, outfit, helmets. Warriors. That's what we are, soldiers of the cross, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the spirits of darkness that cause so many people to fall apart in the hour of darkness. He said, you're going to engage that same enemy and you're going to defeat him. And you will taste the same victory that your Lord tasted because the same devil that he defeated, you will too. Not everybody in the church is an overcomer any more than everybody in the church is caused by God to walk in his way. But the ones that are will win. Not all people will overcome. Not all of us will. Some of us will. It could be all of you. It could be if we just really wanted to, we could. Let me give you three simple principles about overcoming in James chapter 4 and verse 7 where it says, Submit yourself unto God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from him. Now, you've heard that, haven't you? Number one is you submit yourself to God. Nobody can do that for you. You submit yourself to God by invitation. God invites you. In fact, he causes you to come out of darkness and come to him. And to subscribe to his way or submit to his standards of life. And then he says, secondly, this is what you have to do. You have to resist the devil. Because he comes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And your new birth doesn't impress him. He's seen a thousand church members fall apart. 
He just liked the people downtown that talk about us. You know, church people, I'm holier than thou people. Ain't no different than nobody else. Ain't no better than anybody else. But he makes you different. They may throw you in the same lot they throw everybody else in, but you're different. You're a winner. You're not trying to justify yourself or prove it. I'm better. You just stand your ground day and night. If you ever have children, hopefully they'll grow up seeing you as a warrior on their behalf. They'll see the benefits of it. They'll see how the hand of God has made a difference with their daddy or the mama. And they'll want the same power in their life because you trained them like that. But if it's not in your life, it ain't going to be in anybody's life. But you resist the devil. You submit yourself to God. And thirdly, it says, this is the result. He flees from you. Think of it. The very one who is tormenting, torturing, and bringing so much difficulty in so many people's lives, if you resist him, he has to flee. I don't mean just turn around and walk. I mean he has to get out of there. What would it be about you that would make the devil run from you? Faith. Faith in what God said. Just the fact that God said it, and you believe it. That's why. That's the very reason that he would. Let me give you another one before we go. Another good influence of the presence of the indwelling Christ. Turn to John 15 and look at verse 7. If you don't like John 15, 7, then you meant to be in another building this morning. But this is one of the best in the Bible. John 15 and verse 7. If, it's up to you, but this is where God brings his people. If you abide in me and my words, those cleansing, equipping words, if they abide in you, here's the deal. You ask what you will. And it shall be done for you. You ask what you will, and it shall be done. You like that? I don't know how to say this because I've said some things so for 30 years, 10 times, or 100. Abiding in Him is an act of your will, a choice I make. I'm given the choice, it's an invitation. He gives me the privilege. I come in here twice a week. It's my favorite times of the week, the two days we're here. It's my favorite parts of the whole week of coming together and experiencing again the presence of the Lord in enabling us. It only happens twice a week. And he invites us to come to him, partake of his word, and believe it. And the fact that you can believe what he said to the point that you hold it fast, that, oh, I'm counting on this word, that's what abiding means. I'm holding it fast. I won't let it slip. I'm going to hold it fast, and I'm going to count on God to do this. This is his promise to me. I'm going to count on him. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will. What do you want? Now, if you've got to ask it according to God's will, isn't that true? Lord, the lottery's up over $200 million this week. It only takes one ticket. Father, in the name of Jesus, give me one ticket. I doubt you'll get it. I don't think you would. Brother Hamlet says, tithe would be $20 million. I don't want it. What are we going to do with $20 million? Everybody looking like this here. If you don't want it, you know where you can get rid of it. But anyway, <laughs> he's here. He said, you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask what you will. Ask whatever you will and it shall be done. Wonderful. Not only that, but turn to Matthew 18. Go back a couple books to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Whatsoever. Have y'all ever read this before, Matthew 18? Whatever you bind, boy, the commentaries have a real hard time with this. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, who said this? Jesus. Where is Jesus? 
He lives within my heart. Or let's assume that he is this morning. The one on the inside of you is there to promote his kingdom. Amen? His kingdom comes with power. It is a kingdom of power. Those in his kingdom are victorious over all the forces they face. The equipment they have is the word of God. His word is like a two-edged sword. He speaks the word only and the devil flees. There's power in his word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from God. And God makes this concerning our power. He said, now, if any two of you on this earth agree together in harmony, in unison, same way, same thing. Any two of you agree together on this earth as touching, praying for, asking for anything you ask, it shall be done. Then here he says, and whatever you two bind on this earth will be bound where? In heaven. And whatever you loose on this earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what do you suppose all of that's about? Here's what the Amplified Bible says. It's not a translation, but it's a paraphrase of what that verse means. He says, whatever you forbid, he's talking about you as a human being in the kingdom of God, equipped and empowered by the presence of Christ, whatever you forbid and declare to be illegal and unlawful will also be declared to be illegal and unlawful in heaven. It's up to you. And whatever you permit and declare lawful on earth must be permitted in heaven. In other words, you can't make up things that God must hold himself to. You can't control God. You can't say this morning, I'm going to bind that preacher from talking about something this morning. Well, that won't work. Because that's not what heaven meant. Binding and loosing, they say, was an apostolic power that they had to do things that just ordinary people can't do. That's not exactly true. There is such a thing as apostolic power, even to the point of giving a man's flesh to the devil for destruction. Can that be done? In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said to that man who was cohabitating with his father's wife, he said, I've never heard of such a thing. Well, I haven't either. I still try to figure that out. It must have been his mother-in-law. But he said, give his flesh to the devil for destruction that his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment and so forth. Can we do that? Can the church authorize a human life be given to the devil? I mean, is that kind of authority, whatever we bind, can we do that? You did it in the Bible. How about Hymenaeus and Alexander? He said, I've turned them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's pretty powerful. That the church had such authority. But then in Ephesians 1, it's what he talked about. In Ephesians 1, remember, he talked about that the power that he gave to the church. He said that you may have a spirit of wisdom, revelation, knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. You may know. i got to quote the thing. He said, for this is the power that he gave to the church. Church is a powerful unit on this earth. It's weak because of ignorance. It's not doing much now because the people don't know that they can and they've been betrayed. But the biblical account of the church is a powerful unit of believing people who are conquerors and overcomers. They're a bunch of warriors. And nobody can defeat them because he said, no weapon formed against you. In Isaiah, God said, no weapon formed against you will prosper. We're more than conquerors through Christ. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Does that mean that if some kind of a demonic activity is taking place that we have a right to bind it? We do. Look at the next verse. That if two of you agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done. Is that possible? Is that power? 
no two better to do this than a man and his wife. I remember the time, I won't go through all the details. Bonnie and I agreed together concerning something among many times, but one of those really serious moments about the well-being of one of our children. I said to her, let's just agree together. I first asked, can you believe that this and that will happen? She said, yeah. I said, well, I do too. I believe the same thing. Let's you and I agree together that it will. Now, I could believe by myself. She could believe by herself. But we have a verse that says that if two of us agree, two's better than one, I suppose. One can put a 1,000 to flight. Two can put 60 million to flight, 10,000. So Bonnie and I agreed. And it didn't instantly happen. It didn't happen right away. But it happened shortly, not long after this. The very thing we asked for was done better than I thought it could have been done, even by God. And that was a confidence builder letting me know that, you know, she and I, no matter what, we have a source that together as one, we can agree together. We don't do this all the time. We don't take it lightly as though I just do it all. No, when it's a need and a concern, we do it. Otherwise, I use my own faith. She uses hers. We agree together that in the name of Jesus, God, and then whatever the prayer is. We've had calls in the middle of the night. Would you and Bonnie pray? And and we do. It's not exactly a pretty prayer at 3 o'clock in the morning. But it works. Church, we're sitting here this morning at the invitation of God to behold the wonders of His Word. To be able to have your eyes and your heart opened by the great Christ who dwells inside of you. To behold magnificent things in His Word. And to begin to esteem God as worthy of your best efforts. To be accounted the friend of God. To be invited by God to come to His courts. To sit in His presence. To sit in His place. What a privilege we have. Nobody else on the world has this privilege. There is no other God ever known to man like the only true God. A God of love versus the, uh, the Muslim God of hate and death. Those poor souls don't even know how to get delivered from their sins if they know what sins are. We do. Praise God. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is risen no matter what men say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. Praise God. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank You this morning on behalf of all of us here for Your precious Word for your goodness to us, for your kindness to us, for loving us, for your transforming work, to delivering us from deadness and dullness and laziness, that you awaken us out of sleep in this last hour, telling us the groom is coming. He is coming. Get ready. And Lord, we know that we can because you said so. Lord, I believe you've edified your people today, and I ask you to bless the Word to their hearts, that they would remember these things, and as they evaluate themselves and examine themselves, that they would charge themselves to get on the ball, straighten up, listen to God. I thank you that you're long-suffering. I thank you that you're tolerant of our weaknesses. But I trust you, Lord, to make us strong so that we can overcome, triumph, and have that wonderful testimony that others say, what is the reason of the hope that is within you? And we will tell them that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm forever great. To you, 